Like I said last night, this is a little unusual for me. This is more of a biographically inspired Bible study. Uh, we spend a lot of time going through texts, and, and uh, as we should. That should be the main thing we do. Um, but I just thought this would be good. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of great men, and the church historically always gets really unhealthy when you don't know who came before you. Um, you start thinking that you're, you have to be original and that you have to think up new ways of doing things. Uh, whenever I hear the word church and innovative in the same sentence, I always get nervous um, because the Lord has given us already our, our mandate. Um, innovation doesn't have place in ministry except in how to innovatively do the things the Lord has commanded us to do already and to be creative as far as reaching our, our culture. Um, but as far as inventing new ways to do church, uh, there, there isn't. So it's important for us to stand on those shoulders. So turn with me to Psalm 1, just as a reminder again. The difference between a man of God and a man who does not know the Lord. And thankfully, the invitation to know the Lord is always there. Psalm 1. <clears throat> this is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And what I think would be good for us to focus on is just two things, briefly. I don't know if you noticed in verse 1, but there is a progression of deepening into rebellion of the wicked man. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's just a guy who's kind of walking along with people who have rejected the Lord or, or um, stands in the way of sinners. That's when you, you stop and you're a little bit more comfortable with the world system or sits in the seat of scoffers. That's when you've completely settled in to reject the Lord and settled into everything the world supposedly has to offer. So you see that progression. But I think for our purposes this morning, the, the main idea is the second half of verse 2, that on his law, he meditates day and night. And that's the example that Thomas Watson has set for us, a man who's meditated on the, on the law of the Lord. And just to remind you, um, Puritans didn't have tons of Bible study tools at their disposal. What they had mostly was a Bible that they just kept open all the time, and they, they understood this. So we'll continue with... Pictures of Godly Manliness from Thomas Watson, and I think I numbered them on yours, uh, starting with number one again. This is actually number six, but we'll say one. First of all, he's a man who weeps. A man who weeps. That is not often talked about in our culture. He gave the illustration of King David. He said, King David was a man who wept. Psalm 6, verse 6, David said, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. We know that Jesus was a man who wept. We read that a few times in the Gospels. He wept at the death of Lazarus. He wept at the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He was not afraid to weep for things that were, uh, that were difficult to swallow. Watson believed that a godly man is a weeping man. Now, this doesn't mean you have to go, well, I've got to go hit my thumb with a hammer now, I guess, and just make myself cry, that that makes me godly. He's talking about a disposition, an attitude. But he said this, and this is just, just an amazing word picture. He says, grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw, and the sorrow of the heart runs out at the eye. That there's a, there's a melting of the heart because of the grace of God. And as always, he gives a list. He gives six reasons for weeping. And the last one is, is really pretty shocking. Six reasons for weeping. First of all, the godly man weeps for indwelling sin. He weeps for indwelling sin. We're regenerate men who still carry the poison of sin in our flesh. We still have the leftover, the remnant. We're not slaves to sin, and sin ultimately won't 
have dominion over us, won't overcome us, but we fight our vain, sinful, selfish thoughts. I mean, that is a fight every single day, to fight our own selfishness. Watson said that the Christian grieves that he carries that about him which is enmity to God. That he carries about his person that which is the enemy of God. He weeps for indwelling sin. He gives a second reason for weeping. He weeps for clinging corruption. For clinging corruption. This is very similar. He said this. If he could get rid of sin, there would be some comfort. But he cannot shake off this viper. And he's using the illustration of the Apostle Paul on the island of Malta who, who was bitten by a snake and just shook it off. And if we could, we would. But he can't shake it off. First Peter 2.11 the Apostle Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That is an accurate picture that there is, there is a war going on and it's a constant war. Watson points out that this is our battle until the day we die. And he talked about the fact that, that even in the midst of our own death, that's our last battle. Will I die in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? And will I have that attitude or will I, go, will, will I go singing into eternity or go whimpering and crying into eternity? And no, we don't always have a choice. Whereas Chad famously said, will I say, ah, into eternity? Uh, if you guys weren't at that men's retreat, you don't get that joke. But uh, uh, probably the funniest moment of my whole life to hear him say that. Uh, he likens sin. Watson says that it's, it's a dying enemy. And while it's dying, it's still slashing and cutting and stabbing and, and piercing you. And, and it just won't die. It is dying, but it just seems to not die. He gives a third reason to weep. A godly man weeps that he is sometimes overcome by sin. He weeps that he's sometimes overcome by sin. He gives the example of the Apostle Paul in Romans seven nineteen: For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That at times we're overcome by our own passions. We're overcome by our own pride. And that's why we have Psalm 51. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. To remind us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess. Watson referred to Psalm 51. That was David's repentance after sinning with Bathsheba. And he said this. When David had sinned, he steeped his soul in the brinish tears of repentance. That repentance... Is not just saying, Lord, you know, sorry about that. That there's a, there's a weeping, there's a sorrow at the times when we're overcome by sin. He gives a fourth reason to weep. He weeps that he cannot make himself more holy. He cannot make himself more holy. Now, you remember that when Watson uses the word holy, we would probably use the word pure. Um, he says, it troubles a godly man that he shoots so short of the rule and standard which God has set. And when he says make yourself more holy, he's not talking about progressive sanctification. He's talking about ultimate sanctification. He means that the godly man weeps that you can't live one day in this life now sinlessly. And that there's a, there's a weeping over that. Now just to balance that, if you knew Thomas Watson and read other things that he's read, he's not a guy who walks around just, just completely devastated and condemning himself all the time. He understood grace as well as anybody. He understood the grace that he was under, that the cross had covered his sin. But at the same time, because the cross had covered his sin, he would say that that's all the more reason to weep for your sin. And that will get us to the last reason here in a minute. But the fifth one is, he weeps out of a sense of God's love. He weeps out of a sense of God's love. And he says, gracious hearts, those saved by the grace of God, are soonest melted into tears by the fires of God's love. That just contemplating what the Lord did on the cross, what he did to reach down from eternity and pluck us from the fires of hell, is, is immensely loving. Watson told the story of a friend of his who was caught weeping in his own garden. And he was asked why he was weeping. The man said, oh, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. That that was his reason. He was just there contemplating God's love and was, was caught doing so. He gives one more reason for weeping, and this one is stunning. Listen carefully. He weeps because the sins he commits are in some sense worse than the sins of other men. Let me repeat that and then see if you, you buy this. He weeps because the sins he commits are in some sense worse than the sins of other men. 
And the reason he says this is that when we sin, we sin against our own principles. We sin against our faith in Christ. Our sins are sins against love. When Peter denied Christ, Watson said this, Christ had enrolled him among the apostles. He had taken him up into the Mount of Transfiguration. He had shown him the glory of heaven. Yet after all this mercy, it was base ingratitude that he should deny Christ. Our sins, he would say, reflect more dishonor upon God because the sin of a Christian puts a black mark on our faith. It says that your faith is not as legitimate as you say it is. Now, we fully understand that our sins have been, have been paid for and that we are justified in the eyes of the Lord. But his point is well taken, that in some sense, it is worse when we rebel against the Lord because we're the ones who've already been, been uh, given a reprieve from the consequences of sin. So that's a, it's an interesting point. So a man of God is a weeping man. Here's a second picture. He's a man who loves the word. A man who loves the word. Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 119.97. Watson did something interesting, and one of these is going to surprise you. He divides the scriptures into categories, and he explains that the godly man loves each category. First category, he loves the counseling part of the word. The counseling part of the word, the the parts of the word of God that that tell you how to live your life. He calls it the rule and direction for life and that it it points us to our duty. And what he says is great about this is that the counseling part of the word tells us how to love God. That how do we love the Lord? The Lord Jesus himself said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And so we're to love the counseling part of the word. We're to embrace it and to grasp it and to go after it. But I love this. And keep in mind, he's speaking as a believer who understands grace. But he says this, that a godly man loves the threatening part of the word. He loves the threatening part of the word. And he devotes a ton of space to this. He says this, quote, The scripture is like the Garden of Eden. As it has a tree of life in it, so it also has a flaming sword at its gates. That the Bible flashes in the, in the face of every person fire who goes on stubbornly with wickedness. That as we act like unbelievers, the Bible threatens us with discipline like a, like a loving father does. Psalm sixty-eight twenty-one: God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. He says this, I, I love this phrase, a godly man loves the menaces of the word. How, it, how it's menacing. He knows there is love in every threat. That God would not have us perish, but therefore mercifully threatens us so that he may scare us from sin. Now, that is not to say we live a life of fear so that we might earn our salvation. That is to say that as a part of the family, and you can never be kicked out of the family of God, our Heavenly Father is a disciplinarian because He loves His children. And so there is a fear there. And then finally, Watson says that He loves the comforting part of the word. He uses the word consolatory, but we don't use that word very much. You don't, I don't think you've ever told your wife, you're so consolatory. Uh, she, would, she would think you're insulting her or something. He loves the comforting part of the word, and he gives as an example, Psalm 94, verse 19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So he loves the counseling part, he loves the threatening part, and he loves the comforting part. He gives us suggestions for loving the word. Suggestions for loving the word. First of all, reading it, reading it. And he says that the word of God is the field in which the pearl of great price is hidden and we should be digging for this pearl continually. And he makes an exclamation. He says, oh, let us make ourselves familiar with the scripture. Now, this is a big deal for him to say in 1666 when he published um, his book, because in that day and age, not a lot of families owned a personal copy of the Bible. It was right about then that maybe you had one big giant family Bible, maybe. And so if you did, he said, it, it, it's a privilege. You ought to know this word. And he's a man who proved it himself. Make yourselves familiar with the scripture. He also suggests meditating on it. And we talked about this a little bit last night, that we're not a meditating culture anymore. Not talking about transcendental meditation, not talking about new age, uh, new age false religion. We're talking about 
thinking on something and, and going for a walk and pondering one verse or one word. He says this, that the godly man not only has a few transient thoughts, but leaves his mind steeping in the scripture. And by meditation, he sucks from this sweet flower and ruminates on holy truths in the mind. And just to... Just to say, for example, at the basic level of saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only one and only son. And just to stop right there. Say, I'm going to go and think about that for an hour. That's not something we do. And so you would, you would put yourself into the realm of the Puritans if you begin to do that. And I think that there is as much value in doing that as saying, well, I read 25 chapters of the Bible today. Great. Which part did you stop and think about for an hour? Or which part did you take with you? Um, I, I have often in the past uh, gotten a good old-fashioned three-by-five card. And I pick one verse and I write it down. And I take it with me, stick it in my pocket. And all day, that's the one I'm pulling out just to think about it and to, to get it in my mind, in my heart. Uh, we, make our, we make our kids do this from the time they're little. They do a little Bible study and they have to pick a favorite verse and what they learn from it. And they have to meditate on it. And they do it in writing because that way we can see they did it. He also suggests reading it, meditating on it, delighting in it, delighting in the word. And that's really the logical next step. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. It's, it's an attitude of pleasure and of thankfulness of, of not just an intellectual sticking something to my mind, but... Understanding that this is the singular way that God has chosen to communicate with mankind. And that without this Bible, then we don't know anything, and so we do delight in it. He gives a fourth suggestion, hiding it. Hiding it. Psalm 119.11, very familiar to some of you. I have stored up your word, what's the old King James say? I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And he gives this illustration. Uh, Watson was a master illustrator. He said, as a man would carry an antidote about him when he comes near an infected country, so a godly man carries the word in his heart as a spiritual antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. That's pretty neat. It, that, uh, you know, if you're the guy who's, who's allergic to bee stings and you carry around your little EpiPen to get yourself, that when you have tempting thoughts or a tempting situation, you've carried the EpiPen of the Word of God. It's right there. And it's here. Um, I, remember in, I remember in college um, having a debate with a young man who said, the Bible is a crutch. You can't get along without it. And I said, you're absolutely right. No problem there. And so we were talking, and he reached over and he took my Bible. And he said, what are you going to do now? I had just memorized Psalm 119, 111, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the Lord was so gracious. This was not me. This was the Spirit of God. I must have quoted 30 verses at him right then and there. And he just goes, he throws the Bible back at me and walks out. Because I don't need the written copy if you put it here. Obviously, we want the written copy. I don't have Leviticus memorized. Hide it. How about this one? Another suggestion for loving the word. Preferring it above things most precious. Preferring it above things most precious. The Puritans valued preaching as the single greatest event that you could partake of because it was the explanation of God's word. Yes, you read it, that's at this level, but hearing it explained to you is at this level. Um, and, And honestly... If you're given one hour a week to interact with the Bible at some point and you have the choice to read it or hear preaching, uh, this might shock you. If you're going to have to make that choice, hear preaching because it's going to go deeper. It's going to, you're going to have the word explained. Now, we don't have to make that choice, thankfully, but um, they, they preferred it above everything else that was precious. <clears throat> Watson said this, a Puritan would no more think about skipping church than he would about stealing his neighbor's wife. That you, you didn't go to worship today? What else is there to do today? Um, they were not Sabbath keepers. They, they understood that the law of God was for Israel. But they kept the Lord's day. And they would use words like strict and staunch and rigid and rules. Not in the sense that you're earning your salvation by doing certain things or not doing certain things on the Lord's day. But they would say that's the day for worship. 
And if, if you're starving and, you, and you're not making enough money, that means you're not working hard enough Monday through Saturday. Just work harder then. But he wouldn't skip church. They were, they were all in. Um, Puritans didn't have a problem with, with church members who were sort of involved. You were either in or you weren't. And they were all in. And they, they, didn't, they didn't have on the edges. They weren't, they weren't trying to pull people in. You were, you were in. If you were saved, you were in. Another way to, to love the word, talking about it. Talking about it. Psalm 119, 172. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. One of the things I have enjoyed at Grace Bible Church is to just come upon little groups of guys and gals who are talking about the word of God. And talking about what the Lord's doing in their lives. Talking about what was just preached. This is one of the reasons we're starting up some sermon-based small groups. If you're not in one yet, you ought to get in one. There are no-brainers. You just show up. That's uh, all you have to do. You show up and take what was preached and drive those nails in a little bit more deeply. Talking about it. And then the last way we love the word, Watson said, obviously, conforming to it. Conforming to it. He said this, quote, The word is his sundial by which he sets his life, the balance in which he weighs his actions. Well, there's a third picture of a godly man. He's a man of humility. Man of humility. He quotes Proverbs 16.5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And Watson asks a question. These are the diagnostic questions that he asks that make me uncomfortable, make you uncomfortable. He says, how may a Christian know that he is humble and consequently godly? How do you know you're humble? And he gives 10 answers. I'm not going to expound on them. They're all worth considering. Um, but I'm just going to give them to you briefly. 10 answers, how you know you're humble. Number one, he's emptied of all swelling thoughts of himself. I love that. You can kind of just picture the guy's head getting bigger and bigger. He's emptied of all swelling thoughts of himself. The second way he knows he's humble, he thinks better of others than of himself. He's not always trying to get ahead of others. He's trying to push others ahead of him. He thinks better of others than himself. The third way that he knows he's humble, he never believes he has done great things. He never believes he's done great things. And Watson expounds on this. He, he, he talks about great preachers and great businessmen that a humble man doesn't point to his accomplishments. He points to the Lord and says, uh, by God's grace, this has happened in my life. A fourth way he knows he's humble, he's much more focused on his own sin than that of others. Boy, I tell you what, that's a key to a good marriage right there, is just quit, quit holding the mirror up to your wife and just turn it around. That, and if you're both doing that, or at least if you're doing that, that will set an example for her. Much more focused on your own sin than that of others. The fifth way you know you're humble, he always sees God as just, even when he's afflicted. He always sees God as just. That a proud man shakes his fist at God when something bad happens. Because this is me, after all. Uh, why would you do this to precious me? Sixth way, he magnifies Christ at every opportunity. At every opportunity to give the Lord glory, um, he does. I, I, I remember uh, reading a spectacular article in a um, theological journal. It just moved my heart. It was tremendous. It was so well done. And I happened to meet the author of it. And I just said, thank you for that article. That was spectacular. And immediately he said, all glory goes to Christ. Without him, I have, a, I have an IQ of a slug. It's all him. And he just pushed it right back. And this guy was a genius. Uh, amazing man of God. Here's a way you know you're humble. The one we all wish we could skip. He is willing to take correction for sin. Now, we are men, and how do we get when we're corrected? What's the first thing that happens? Our temperature goes up like that, right? And we have eight things come out of our mouth before we go, oh, well, can I just sort of take that back real quick? A humble man keeps his mouth shut and listens. Doesn't matter how high up he is in whatever organization he's in. Eighth way you know you're humble, he's willing to serve without credit or acclaim. He's willing to serve without credit or acclaim. Um, I've been pastoring for a long time, and I, I love the fact that at Grace Bible Church, for the most part, we have a culture of serving without credit or acclaim. 
but I can always tell when somebody has crossed over into a prideful attitude because they complain to me that they haven't been recognized for what they did. And I, I generally just say, you know, A, I can't, we, we can't recognize everybody. We don't, I, I'm not that organized to be able to do that. But B, who are you working for? Um, let the Lord recognize you. And many a faithful church servant has served for decades and not ever received a single thank you. And that's okay. Um, I don't feel obligated to always do that because our thanks is from the Lord. Ninth one, and this is a key one, how you know you're humble. These are the Watson's exact words. He likes the condition which God sees best for him. He likes the condition which God sees best for him. In other words, he didn't just grit his teeth and say, well, I guess this is the Lord's will. <sighs> he says, this is what the Lord has for me, therefore I will like it. Um, uh, as the old saying, uh, it's better to want what you have than to have what you want. To just be okay with where you are. And the tenth way you know you're humble he will stoop to the lowest person and to the least responsibility. He will stoop to the lowest person and the least responsibility. That was his easy question. Now he gets to the hard questions. The diagnostic questions to ask ourselves. And he asks these five of them. Am I prone to boasting? Am I prone to boasting? 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump Am I prone to boasting? This is the irony. Um, a, a pastor friend of mine, uh, I, oh, maybe a year or so ago, we had to talk about his resume. And he said, this is so weird. We spend our whole Christian life fighting against boasting. Then I have to put my resume together and look like a completely proud heathen by saying, I've done this, 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 and this. And that's the world we live in. You, you have to do that to a certain degree. But it's, the point's well taken. Uh, maybe a resume should say, Worm of God saved by grace. Take me if you want. You'll see what happens. So we talked about that. I told him his family wouldn't like that because he would starve to death. But am I prone to boasting? When I have conversations, do I, do I fall into telling people wonderful things that I've done? Am I, the, am I the hero of my own story? Another diagnostic question. Do I often ponder my talents and accomplishments? Do I, do I walk around thinking, man, I've, I've done pretty good. I've done okay. But that's a, that's a diagnostic question. He used the example of Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 who boasts of his own greatness, and by doing so, he revealed the fact that he was lost. He revealed the fact that he wasn't saved. The third diagnostic question, do I tend to look down on others and be constantly critical? Do I tend to look down on others and be constantly critical? Um... I, I've been in ministry long enough to know when that's happening because I know what's happening. It's the person who, who constantly says the words, oh, I love, I love your preaching. And I, whenever somebody says that too much, I always get a little suspicious because I preach 100 times a year. There's no way you loved all of it. Now, there's, that's not possible. I don't even love all of it. Uh, I walk down from the pulpit sometimes going, man, that wasn't even worth the price of admission today. But the way I know it happens is that all, all of a sudden, after a year of, oh, I love the preaching, I love the ministry, I love everything that's going on. By the way, can I talk to you? Sure, no problem. And then I get 57,000 complaints. You know what's been happening? It's been a year of, in my mind, critical of this, critical of that, critical of this, critical of that. Happens in your marriages. That's what, uh, what Hebrews calls the root of bitterness, that you're contemplating these complaining critical thoughts, making these lists of all the reasons why this person is not living up to your precious standard. Man, that is death to the Christian walk. And when you're having that critical spirit and then, then you go to prayer and say, Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown me. What does the Lord do? Er, I'm not listening. See also 1 Peter 3, 7. That if you, you're treating others that way, he doesn't tend to answer prayer. Great diagnostic question. How about this one? Do I secretly boast to myself instead of giving God glory? Do I secretly boast to myself instead of giving God glory? I remember a number of years ago preaching a sermon, and I was still kind of trying to learn the ropes, and my poor congregation had to, had to kind of uh, learn along with me. And I remember um, coming down one Sunday thinking, man, I, I kind of nailed that, finally. 
you know, this, that went really well. And, and an older gentleman in the church came up, his arm around me, and I was waiting for the glowing compliments. And he said, kind of having an off day today, aren't you? It's <laughs> like, because I was boasting to myself, oh, man. Um, Charles Spurgeon said that if you want to, if you want to come down the way you went up to the pulpit, then you have to go up the way you came down. Meaning, if you go up to the pulpit pridefully, you're going to, you're going to lay a rotten egg and come down humbled like this. He said, go up humbled, then you can come down proud in the best sense of that word. All right, and then the fifth diagnostic question. This is hard for us guys. Am I always discontent and never pleased with my current condition? Am I always thinking I need to have more, do more, achieve more? Do I have to achieve that one more position in my company? Do I need to make that one more figure of money? Do I need to live in that one more step of a house? When do I say enough? When do I say that that's enough? You guys with me? Big old breakfast is not a good way to start and then, uh, and then, and then try to listen or preach. I don't usually eat much before I preach. And I'm kind of like, let's close in prayer. Speaking of which, number four, a godly man is a man of prayer. Watson says this, prayer is the soul's traffic with heaven. God comes down to us by his spirit and we go up to him in prayer. And he asks another probing question. These, by, by the time you're reading, it's like, don't ask me one more question. I'm already so guilty now. He says, do not even the hypocrites often pray with great devotion? How can it be the sign of a godly man that you love prayer? How can that be? His answer, a hypocrite can't pray in the spirit. Ephesians 6.18. We have the spirit of God praying with us. So Watson talks about the nature of a spiritual prayer. What is a spiritual prayer? And he gives several elements of a spiritual prayer. First, a spiritual prayer happens when we pray with knowledge. A spiritual prayer happens when we pray with knowledge. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, the Apostle Paul says that he prays with the Spirit, but with his mind also. That prayer is thought out and meaningful and intentional. It's not just a stringing together of a bunch of phrases that you learned in Sunday school or heard in church. Um, I, I, I'll never forget prayer class at the Master Seminary. And the professor I had, he said, stop using the Lord's name as filler in your prayers. Stop saying, and Lord, we would have you do this. And Jesus, we want you to do that. And Father, do this. And Father, do that. And Father, do that. That just means you're not thinking about what you're saying. Address the Lord and then ask of him. And boy, that, that impacted me. We pray with our mind. Ecclesiastes 5.2, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. That's kind of contrary to what we're often taught, and I've taught this. We should be in the mindset of prayer all the time. But the other side of that coin is, don't be hasty to utter a word before the Lord. I know he's sovereign and he knows your thoughts, but have you ever taken the time to say, I'm going to plan out what I'm about to pray, and I'm going to write this down, and I'm going to, I'm going to um, take the time I would take if I was going to speak to the President of the United States. If I'm going to visit with the President of the United States, I'm not going to say, hey, what's up? Let's have a conversation. I would be thinking, I want to say this, this, and this. He says to seek the Lord's will in the scriptures and then pray that. So spiritual prayer happens when we pray with knowledge. He also says spiritual prayer happens when our deepest desires are expressed to the Lord. That there's a heartfelt nature to this. He gives the example of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. That Hannah, quote, prayed in her heart doesn't just mean she wasn't speaking out loud, but it's the, the yearnings and the overflow of her inner self was being poured out to the Lord. Watson said this, if the heart does not accompany prayer, it is speaking, not praying. Did you catch that? If the heart does not accompany prayer, it is speaking, not praying. Very similarly, spiritual prayer happens in fervent prayer. In fervent prayer. Watson uses the Holy Spirit as the example of a fervent prayer. Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. That's fervent prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to generate something. It's an attitude of the heart. It means that you're going to prayer knowing that prayer is a battle. 
Um, I love what uh, D.A. Carson says about prayer, that you pray until you're praying. That sometimes you're speaking to the Lord and you feel like it's just being shredded in that ceiling fan and it's not going anywhere. But you kind of get in the zone. You pray until you're praying. That's why one-minute prayers are not usually um, the food for an effective Christian life. You can say, oh, I pray an hour a day. 60 times a day I pray for a minute. I don't think that's effective. Um, I, I think those are smoke signals. Those aren't prayers. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now that is an ironic verse. Did God save Jesus from his death? No. But he prayed fervently because he knew that God the Father could save him. He also knew he wasn't going to. How fervent are we praying a prayer you know isn't going to be answered? That's phenomenal. Uh, What an example that the Lord sets. Watson said this, Incense without fire makes no sweet smell. And incense in scripture very often compared to prayers. He says this about spiritual prayer. Spiritual prayer happens from a broken heart. From a broken heart. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Watson had a tender heart and he was sensitive to the workaday guy and the, 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 the stay-at-home mom who maybe wasn't well-educated, wasn't very eloquent, didn't know a lot of words. And he addressed those who felt that they couldn't pray eloquently, that they couldn't use the words that they, they wished they could And he says this, but can you weep and sigh? Does your soul melt out at your eyes? You don't need to know the words. You need to have the the attitude of a broken heart. And then he says that spiritual prayer happens with belief. With belief. Matthew 21, 22, Jesus said, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And Watson, the master illustrator, says this, The reason many prayers suffer shipwreck is because they split against the rock of unbelief. Praying without faith, I love this, is shooting without bullets. You just click, click, click. There's no no ammo. Isaiah 59.1 Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And Watson says that praying without belief is praying believing that God is deaf, that he can't hear you. Well, then one more. Spiritual prayer happens in holiness. And again, he uses holiness where we would say purity. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, I've done an explanation of this before, but the idea of lifting holy hands, it's not, it's not the charismatic church idea of doing this and jumping around and having a great time. There's no example, maybe one, but no example except for that possible one exception of physically lifting hands to the Lord out of a sense of happiness. The idea of physically, which is really much more of a metaphor, it's not a physical thing necessarily, of lifting hands to the Lord is to lift them like this, that I have a need and I have a desperation. And so when Paul tells Timothy, commanding the men to lift holy hands, what's the opposite of a holy hand? It is one that is, has been involved in sin, one that has done things that it regrets and now is daring to come before the Lord. It's like, a, like the guy um, years ago in, in our church, that um, sad story. He was, he was our, our music worship leader. And I called him on a Saturday night and, and I don't know if this is the prompting of the Lord. And I, I, I said, uh, you know, what are you doing right now? And he said, I'm preparing for tomorrow. And... Um, I don't, know, I don't know what led me to ask this question, but I just said, I don't believe you. What are you really doing right now? And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And he says, I'm looking at pornography right now. And he said, and I'm preparing for tomorrow. I said, so let me get this straight. You are preparing to lead our congregation in the praise of the Lord, and you've got up on your computer screen pictures of naked women. And he said, yeah. And I said, you're fired. Because you, you can't do that. You're, you're leading us and yet, yet being so hypocritical like that. And we had to work with him for a long time. That's the idea of lifting holy hands. Now, that, that's not to expect perfection, certainly. But it is to say, he wasn't fighting the battle. He was just being bowled over by it and not even giving in at all. 
Spiritual prayer happens when confession and humiliation before God has happened first. Um, I, many of you have learned the ACTS model of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I prefer the CATS model of prayer. Confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. You're not going to get struck by lightning for not doing one or the other. Watson says this, sin stops the mouth of prayer. Sin poisons and infests prayer. Psalm 66, 18, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And he says something, Watson says something that's just stunning. It is foolish to pray against sin and then to sin against prayer. It's foolish to pray against sin and then to sin against prayer. Well, a godly man loves prayer. Last one for this morning. Godly man is a man of sincerity. Of sincerity. Gives the example of John 1.47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. The Greek word deceit means treachery or cunning or trickery. That what Nathanael was was what you saw. That he was the same on the outside as he was on the inside. Watson said this of a godly man. He says, a godly man is plain hearted, having no subtle subterfuges. Faith is the uniform a godly man wears. And this uniform is lined with sincerity. Listen, the Puritans valued a simple life. They valued a life that was simple enough to be scrutinized. That you could say, what do you do with your life? Well, I get up, I read my Bible, I pray, I eat breakfast with my family, I go to work, I come home, I spend time with my wife and with my kids, and I go to bed. And I do the same thing the next day, except on the Lord's Day, we get up and go worship together. That's my life. They value that simplicity that that there was no there was no trickery. There was no sneaking out at two o'clock in the morning to go to a tavern. There was no that's what they would call them then we would call it the bar. Um, there was no there was no second life. There was no double um, sort of a, 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 a competition between me and what I really want to do. That the things they did was what they wanted to do. And they they lived a simple life. They had a great view of sincerity. As always he gives a list. He gives qualities of a sincere man. I think it was Jeremy had the idea to, that with Watson's outline, we could put a whole wall up here, start with the table of contents and then outline it all the way down because that's how he, he thinks. But he gives the quality of a sincere man. First one's obvious. He is what he seems to be. He is what he seems to be. The Apostle Paul spoke of a true Jew and he said in Romans 2, 28 and 29, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, no is, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He is what he seems to be. Second quality of a sincere man, he strives to be approved by God in all that he does. He strives to be approved by God. Now, Watson doesn't use this in, in a salvific sense. They were striving to be good enough for God. We've already failed that the moment we were born and started screaming our head off because everything was all about me. That was the first failure right there. But he strives to be approved by God in the sense of being mindful that some things please the Lord and some don't. You know, the old argument against um, against the doctrine of election is that if the doctrine of election is true, then we could just go sin all we want. If the doctrine of the assurance of salvation is true, we can just go do whatever we want. Let me ask you a question. If you love your wife and you love her dearly and she says, sweetie, you can do anything you want. You can go have a girlfriend. You can, do, you can go to a bar every night. You can come home drunk. You can do drugs. I don't care. You can do whatever you want. Does that mean you're going to go do that? If you're a reprobate, it does. But as a saved man, as a man who loves his wife, he would say, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. I don't want to do any of those things because I love you. So, so we're free, I guess, to do what we want under the umbrella of our salvation. But godly man doesn't want to do those things. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and 9. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away... Here's the crux of the issue. We make it our aim to please him. By the way, that's a whole different doctrine, by the way, that in heaven, our aim will still be to please the Lord. 
at home, that's, he calls it being a home, at home, we're now away, and that's still our aim. Here's another quality of a sincere man. He's transparent about his own sin. He's transparent about his own sin. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Watson said this, the hypocrite veils and smothers his sin. He does not cut off his sin, but conceals it. Like a patient that has some loathsome disease in his body, he would rather die than confess his disease. That's kind of what we as guys do, right? We wait until we're at, uh, at complete death's door, and then we go to the doctor and we limp in. Doc, is there something you could do? No, there was if you had come two years ago. There's nothing I can do now. That's pride. That's all that is, right? Well, he says that's the same thing. And he makes a contrast to the man who will confess sin in general and the one who will confess sin in particular. That that's, that's a sign of sincerity. Um, you know, we, we see this all the time. Uh, we get together as a small group, small groups of men. And, you know, what, what, what can we pray for for you? Well, I'm, I'm really struggling with the sin of pride. Okay, great. What's the real issue? Well, the real, real issue is, is that I think I could do my boss's job better than him. And so I'm being really nasty toward him every time we interact. That's the real issue. Anybody can say, oh, I'm prideful. But how? How's that being demonstrated? That's, that's transparency. That is sincerity. And then the last quality of a sincere man, sincere man, he is not a flatterer. He's not a flatterer. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. He doesn't engage in counterfeit friendship that lasts only until that person does something you don't like. Um, in the ministry, among us pastors, we have a saying that the guy who helps you move in will often be the guy who helps you move out. That the, that the person most excited about bringing you to their church is the one who will first be the most critical the minute you do something you don't like. Um, when I was in seminary, I got involved in the ministry for a while, and I was there for two, precisely two weeks before one of the leaders wanted to sit me down and give me a big lecture about how I could preach better. And I heard him teach before. I said, are you kidding me? Um, but it was, it was true. He was the guy most excited about bringing me there. And in two weeks, it was nothing but criticism. And okay, well, that's fine. I'm always happy to learn. But it wasn't genuine. And when we were done, I said, you're a flatterer because you weren't honest with me. You've heard me preach before and you waited until you got me here to begin the, the, the critique. So I said, my critique to you is you were a flatterer and that's sin. You were not honest. You were not sincere. Here's an example of an insincere man. This is the one that uh, uh, Watson gives. It's the example of Joab. I know you guys think about Joab all the time. 2 Samuel chapter 20. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground literally embracing him and kissing him and taking his life at the same time. That's an insincere man. So we want to be a man who weeps, a man who loves the word, a man of humility, a man of prayer, a man of sincerity. I think what I want you to notice about all of these, those five in particular deal with humility of the heart. They deal with what's going on right here between the ears. Because that's where all sin starts, right here. Every sin you commit with your hands, with your mouth, with your feet, every sin you commit bodily is simply the symptom of something that happened in your mind first. And so I, I love the fact that there is an emphasis on what's going on in the heart. John Owen, the Puritan, wrote a famous book called The Mortification of Sin. That's, a, that's an ancient word. We don't use mortification anymore. It just means to kill something. It is the, the murder of sin. We might put it that way. And he based his whole book, this was classic Puritan. This book's like this thick. And he based the whole book on one verse. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And here was his principal assertion of the book. Quote, that the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin, in other words, they're justified, ought yet to make it their business all their day 
to mortify, kill the indwelling power of sin. And if you ask Thomas Watson, he would say the mortification of sin is 100% a heart issue. That's where it all starts. That's where it ends. If the heart and the mind are in the right place, then the actions and the words will follow naturally. And what did Jesus say? That from the overflow of the heart comes the mouth, right? So it reveals what's in your, in your heart. Well, there's five more, and I'm thankful for these. Um, I, I told you before that we're going to try to offer uh, this book at a bookstore soon. You've got to get the book. You've got to read through it once. Um, it will be life-changing to you. So let me close this in prayer, and then Grant will give us instructions about what's happening next. Thank you, Father, for the example of great men who have gone before us. May we heed their warnings. Their warnings to us now are only in writing. They have gone on before. They are, they are with you now. They have received their reward. But we're still here, and we still fight our own sin. We still fight to be men of God, and we desire to do that well. We are given such a brief time on this earth. Lord, every, every second that ticks by is one second closer to our death. We're one second closer to that moment of standing before you. And of course, the first and greatest question is, what will that moment hold for us? If we are in Christ, that moment will hold for us, well done, good and faithful servant. If not in Christ, that moment will hold for us, depart from me, I never knew you. And so that moment first is what we aim for. But beyond that, as those who have been, been purchased by the blood of Christ, we want that moment to be filled with delight in that we pursued you with all of our hearts while on this earth. That we lived as men who loved you and who, who mortified sin and who worked to be holy and to be pure. Not to gain your merit because we can't do that but just because we love you and we want to be more and more like our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that would be the impact of this day. I pray that the arrows that have been, uh, that have been slung into the hearts of these men right now would bleed and fester until whatever issue needs to be dealt with in each of their hearts is dealt with. And then you would be the one who wounds and also the one who binds up and makes us just a little bit more like Christ until that glorious day when we see him And we are made into his image finally and ultimately. Thank you, Lord, for this time of fellowship. We pray for our our time now of just having some fun together, that it would be pleasing to you and bonding for us together as men who love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.